I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. All right, welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Sam Monson here in the studio. No Steve, no Steve today, but we've gotten bigger. We've upgraded on the size department. We've kept the height, and we've gone for some bulk and brought in an offensive line guru, a specialist, former NFL offensive lineman, Jeff Schwartz. How's it going, Jeff? Also former pitcher as well, so I kind of fit oh, that wow. baseball mold hill. I, I didn't play the minor. I wasn't a minor league pitcher, but I pitched all through high school, and I actually thought I, I, thought I would pitch in college – um, more than I thought I'd play football until about my senior year in high school. So um, I always, that is always what I thought my path would be. It was what, was what Steve did. Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. So you're a good person to ask on this. We've kind of let this slide a little bit, but I want to get it back on the, on the agenda before, you know, we get into the season and stuff. We had this, our next charity drive on the podcast is, yes. you know, we had this thing where Steve was going to pitch at me and I had to try and hit one of them. Um, and then we were talking at the combine actually with a bunch of people and we're like, what, what miles per hour could I record pitching having never like, you know, never pitched. I've thrown things. I've played like sports involved throwing balls, but I've never pitched uh, a baseball just going out there cold, you know, a couple of warm up strikes. The rules were, you know, no crow hopping, just one step off the mound, fire it down. What can I hit on a, on a, you know, radar gun? So you don't, you've never really thrown, like, it's not your thing. Like you, like you're not in the gym, like you're not throwing with your kids or anything. Like you're just, no, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I'll throw a ball around with people. I've thrown, yeah. I've played sports that involve throwing. Like I played cricket back in the day. I've played football, you know, I've, I've played sports that involve throwing. I've just never like pitched yeah, baseball. I, I probably, I would guess like low seventies. Oh, let's, let's go. So, I mean, that's not like that hard. No, no. Trust me. Having seen, having stood in front of Steve's low seventies pitches, I'm aware that that is not like gas. I think I, I would guess low high sixties, low seventies, probably. <laughs> I and mean, if you're raring back to yeah. throw with all your might, uh-huh. um, that's probably maybe a little much. But what, what's the what's the what, what does Steve say? Like how fast do you think you can throw it? So the cutoff point, right? Steve doesn't think I I I am guaranteeing. That I will that the first number is at least a six that I can hit sixty. Steve doesn't think there's a chance in hell that I can hit sixty, and Tyler over here in the booth doesn't think I'm hitting sixty. That's like the cutoff point. People are maybe right there I'm, going, no, low fifty. Um, I guess no crow hops. You have to just all. I mean, maybe I'm just maybe I haven't played in so long. I don't really I don't really know the speeds anymore. What right. people can throw, but like you know, like a a good high school pitcher is throwing what eighty miles an hour. Yeah. So here's You're an adult. I, I I I think you hit one. You can't crow hop because a lot of those times when you see those machines that people use, like at the fair, they're all crow hopping and they're right. all running into it. So maybe it's maybe I need to go down to like in the high 60s. Yeah. Without a crow hop. Right. I mean, look, here's from from the sort of survey of opinion and doing a little bit of research in terms of like what 14 year olds can pitch and that kind of thing. I think you're I think 70s is is ambitious. I, th- I think you're over egging it with the 70s, but. <laughs> That gives me a hole like 14 miles an hour to still hit 60. Like, I'm still guaranteeing we're hitting 60. That's the main point here. Yeah, I think if I threw now, my shoulder's so bad right now. I could probably, <laughs> I get in the 70s somewhere, but I don't know if I could throw even 80. 80. I, I threw like almost 88, 90 in high school. I probably can't get there, not even close. I mean, now, so, I, so Steve, what did he say he topped that at? Like 95 back in the day, I think was yeah, his I'm fastest. Yeah, I'm he's tall. I mean, right, and he had, like, he had like a 40-minute warm-up when we did this at UC and then went out there and was hitting 74 and topped out at 75. So I think it's probably unrealistic that the first number I can hit is a, it begins with a 7, but I'm giving him 14 miles an hour to hit 60. I think I'm still good. 
You should. I I think you can hit sixty. If yeah. The first. No, I don't think. I don't know if the first throw will be that that number. I would not try to blow your arm out on the first throw. Oh no, I need to. Yeah. I I, I think right. there's got to be some kind of easing into this. You know, like yes. let's start. Yes. You know, just a basic throw warm up, and then, you know, a couple of couple of real ones, and then we try and gas it up for like one one final number. I. How many throws do you get again? We haven't put a limit on the number I can throw. So I can I can you know ease into this. I would not, I would try to gas up on like the second to last one though because you want to leave yourself one. What's going to happen is, is you're going to gas up on the last one and you're going to throw a wild pitch. It doesn't really right yeah, yeah go straight enough to register like a really strong rating. Like you need to give yourself a couple like of full speed reps. Yeah, um, where you're where you're going at it. I like it. I, we, this is good. This is good. I got some I got some coaching involved now. Um, but anyway, the real reason we brought you on today is to talk offensive line stuff, not your glorious pitching career back in the day um <laughs> and, and it's perfect timing because ol masterminds you guys call that ol or actually offensive line masterminds when you, you know, uh, speak i don't know existence? i just call it masterminds okay. I, think, I think it's just offensive line masterminds i mean ol obviously is yeah yeah in the title but it's just offensive line masterminds so OL however we're calling this everyone. offensive line ol masterminds um you're you're involved in this a little bit and so tell us all about it for any for people that don't know what this is what is OL Masterminds and why does it exist and what's going on in the in the next few days? Yeah, so you know, Von Miller started the uh, the Pass Rush Academy, I believe it was, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the year after that, Lane Johnson was on a uh, top 100 NFL kind of, kind of countdown show and mentioned like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we kind of got together as the defensive linemen do? And and Duke saw that and you know he was training Lane or he knew Lane very well at the time and they came together and. Lane and Duke put this together and we're now in our fifth year and um, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So, you know, we, it, so we, it started with kind of a small pro group the first year. Now it's grown to where we have hall of famers, retired hall of famers coming in. We have current pros and all pros. And then we have, you know, younger college guys and we have high school players in the region. And then also coaches come as well. Um, So there's this big mix of, of a uh, melting pot of offensive alignment. And I think it's really, it's really good to just hear from guys that are like-minded about techniques they use, how they combat certain guys. It's not really so much about like watching a bunch of dudes, how they rush the passer. It's more about learning from guys in your position. Okay. How do you attack this? And if you could pick up one or two things to be a better football player, it becomes a huge plus. There's also the camaraderie part of this, right? I mean, it's only time of year. I guess you see all my former buddies and, and guys that I talked to all year long. We all kind of gather once for this big camaraderie event. Um, but, you know, our position, and, and you know this, is very unique. And sometimes you need to be together to talk it through. I think one thing we're missing now in just offensive line meeting rooms and really in any meeting room is – the idea of watching film together because with iPads now you can just go home and watch your film. We used to have to, I feel old saying this, I'm not that old, but we had to sit in our meeting room together as an offensive line and watch film. We didn't have iPads. Like we didn't have a way to go home. We had DVDs, but those, you know, I'm not watching DVD. I'd stay, I'd stay there late and watch film with Ryan Gleal and Jordan Gross and Travell Warren and Jeff Hangarden, like all the guys in the, in, in, you know, in our Carolina uh, Panthers offensive line room, like we watch film together and it's important, I think, to, to watch film and learn and be in person when you discuss these things. And again, not every technique that you're going to be told works for you. And then that's the important part about this. You're going to hear different things in different ways to get bad things because look, we have some hall of famers there. The way that, that really Rofe and Steve Hutchinson did things is not the way Jeff Schwartz could do it, right? right? But if I could pick up one thing or one way that they learn about the game or one way they watch film, especially if you're a young guy, it becomes a very important weekend. That's a really interesting point that I've never thought about before. Like this this evolution of technology and how easy it is to go away and like do tape study in your own. It's great, right? Like the idea that you can go home and watch tape on an iPad anytime, any place. That's awesome. But you really do there's something to the idea of watching tape with more than just you, right? With having other people's input. And I mean, even, you know, just in PFF, right? When you watch tape with multiple people, you're always going to pick up other things that you wouldn't see initially, or even just talking out how you disagree on a play, I think is pretty important. Cause like, you know, you see this all the time on Twitter, right? There are people that post something, just a single play and they've interpreted it in a completely different way than you would. And on, Okay, a lot of the time it's easy to just say, well, that guy's an idiot. But, like, <laughs> t- there's something to the idea of, like, sometimes you're going to 
seeing something completely different and hearing a guy talk it out is actually important to how all of you see things and kind of learn the game. And it really frustrates me when I when I watch offensive lines down. I see them like third and eight, and they're just confused when a TE comes at them. And you're like, don't you talk to each other? Like, are, <laughs> are we sitting at you? Are we preparing for third and eight? Like, that's a down where you should be and your your buddy next to you should be on absolute um, you know, lockstep in what we're doing right now. And I feel like that's kind of part of what's lost in this iPad generation is that we're just not sitting down with each other talking through, okay, what are we doing on third and eight? What you know? What if happens if they do? If they give us this look, what happens if the safety's here? All that those things. Yeah, it makes for better individual film study. But as a group, are we coming together and figuring out how we're going to handle certain situations? I think that part is a little bit lost in the NFL right now, especially with with, with younger players. Do you think that that's all part of this whole like scaling back? You know coaching time with the CBA and all that kind of stuff, like in-person practice time and just generally like scaling back the amount that's expected of these players. And it feels like, you know, these things like OL masterminds, the passing Academy, the tight, what is it? Tight end university, whatever, yeah. all these things, they're kind of everywhere right now. And I'm wondering like, how important is this? How important are these sort of summits to kind of almost replace and backfill the stuff that maybe used to happen within NFL organizations back when you could have them in, you know, 12 hours a day, every single day, and just grind on these guys until they learned everything. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you're not going to, this is not going to replace all of that time that we used to spend together, but if it gives you again, one or two things you can take away, but also the connections, right? Like last year where Sean Slater and my brother, like we're in a corner for, both days for like an hour at a time. And I'm sure there was something that Slater picked up there and, and I'm sure that they talked further. Like there's ways to keep the, you know, keep the conversation going. And again, if you pick up one thing that helps you in this weekend, it, it, it hits a huge bonus. But again, it's hearing from different, I, I think sometimes we look at the sport and we say there's only one way to do thing, right? This is the way yeah. we do it. But not really. There's many ways to do things correctly and make it work. And I think this part of the summit that's important is hearing different ways to do things because that might, again, my body type is different than someone else's body type. I've had coaches that wanted me to play like someone who was six, three, I'm nearly six, seven, I'm three forty. Not, I wish I was, but <laughs> three forty when I played, like I, 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 I could not do things that someone else yeah. smaller than me was able to do just physically not possible. I was not able to get low enough to be that player. And the important part of the mastermind is hearing from a guy like me, or I mean, I'm not sure how much I'll talk, but someone who's Lane Johnson, who does things, you know, he's a double under guy, right? Like he might tell you, okay, this is what works for me. And you might get that from him and be like, oh, I'm going to be a double under guy now. Like I couldn't do that. I wasn't, that wasn't my game, but for someone else hearing Lane talk about his technique might help them be a better player. And so I think that's important just to hear these different ways to do things and be comfortable in learning those techniques again, offensive line coach. There's a you know, look, there's 32 teams. Obviously, there's not 32 good offensive line coaches. Just like there's not 32 good play callers. It's just not the way it is. So, to your point, this can supplement a little bit of that, but you still need to be able to bring that technique back and be able to work on it. And this is why Duke and training with him all year around is really important, is it, because you need more than probably just this weekend. Yeah, and there's there's guys that are you know good offensive line coaches, but they're not flexible right so that they're doing the things that you talk about which is like oh no this is how we do it this is how we coach it nothing else is acceptable like this is what we're looking for but that's just not always practical there are guys that need to do it a slightly different way it doesn't mean it's wrong it doesn't mean it's going to break the entire system it just means you need to have a little bit of flexibility with you know adjusting the way you teach things to the the actual personnel that you have which is the most important part it's it's, it's hugely important i do think that the better coaches in the NFL obviously do that. Like we right. know that they do that. And, um, you know, I think it's just old coaches, man. Some of them just have trouble, right? Like we, we, you know, they say we've done this, this entire way, you know, I'm, okay. But like the player you might have is different. Like can you, can you teach them to do it a different way? And I think sometimes coaches have a hard time um, figuring that out. Also, they have a hard time. I think just with, to your point about lack of time, like our position is very hard to teach with a lack of time. And that's yeah. not, you don't get time anymore. You get, there's no double days anymore. There's no even, you know, you show up in the middle of April. We used to show up March 15th. Like there's time constraints now. You don't have those things. So coaches have got to be flexible with how they teach players. And I feel like we're just kind of, it's not everywhere, you know, but, but you know, there's a good amount of coaches that haven't made that adjustment yet. I've been saying for a while, it feels like the NFL desperately needs some kind of like developmental 
pathway system, right? Whether it's like a you know like a G League, whether it's a I don't know, expanding the way that the yeah. the practice squad stuff works, whatever it is. But like offensive line in particular, offensive line and quarterbacks feel like the two areas where they desperately need some way of getting like real learning reps that aren't live regular season games where those guys just aren't ready for that yet. Yeah. And, you know, it's why I think one of these sort of spring leagues that keeps showing up, the XFL or the USFL or the, the AAF or whatever, one of those needs to stick around just for this, right? Just to get offensive linemen yeah. out there playing football and, and developing in a way that they just don't get the chance to do in the NFL. What would be what would be your kind of plan for how we get some offensive line development going? I wrote an article a long time ago about this, and it was like you have to basically have a like a kind of a practice squad by region. So like during the season, you have like the you know the four maybe you do it by division, right? The four you know, NFC South teams get together and, and they have one practice squad that plays the AFC East. And when, you know, like you kind of have this group and then you're able to pick your players off that team whenever you want. But that also would require a coaching philosophy across those four teams, right? And that might be, the you know, the hard part is right. like getting together and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to coach this way. Uh, and they look, and they do this at, at, at um, you know, East-West Shrine game and Senior Bowl. You, you can make it work, right? But you then have to invest in coaches and whatnot. And the NFL, look, their minor leagues are college football and, and specifically the linemen. That's why you see a lot of top linemen drafted from like the same eight schools. Right. Because those eight schools do it really well. And we're going to draft those guys knowing they're going to come to the NFL and be ready to play. And there's other schools where you might draft guys and they're, they're more developmental guys. They're not trained as well, but they're able to kind of physically – come in right, you know, right right, away and play. And that's where Duke comes in as well, being able to train these guys and help them in. But I think it has to be like this, again, like eight giant practice squads that play each other every week, sort of like you would in, in a minor league system. But the NFL has to be in on it. And you have to obviously agree on playing time between four division rivals, uh, how you're coaching these kids. So I don't think you can have 32 practice squads that play each other each week. Like right. that feels un, unorthodox and, and just too much. Also too, like, you a spring like a spring developmental league that's a little too much wear and tear in my opinion right because you have an entire season of practice for a practice squad player which i was my first year i'm doing everything i'm just not playing the games and often i'm doing more i was playing offense and defensive line in practice i was doing almost all the special teams and this is when we were in pads thursday you know wednesday thursday maybe half a friday sometimes and then after this long season of practice now i get what a month off and i go into a a 10-week spring league and then i get a month off and go to training camp, like my body's going to be shot. So yeah. I think it has to be done during the season if you want to have a, dev- a, a developmental league. And that requires, of course, the NFL teams to come together and work on it. Almost like, you know, when you see soccer, the sort of the under 20s teams or whatever, like the youth teams almost mirror the schedule of the, the big team, like the pro team, and they kind of follow them, you know, like a day early. And so, like, yes. Liverpool's under-23s plays the same fixture list as the main team. They just do it the day before, and they get that kind of same learning experience. That's, I think it's a good point that, like, so the, the point you bring up about college is good because that, that's where the problem is in my eyes, right? That the NFL treats college like a developmental league, and if college shifts away from the NFL in any way, you open up these gaps. And right. with the, the way that the college game has gone in terms of spread offense and all this kind of thing, everyone was worried about the effect that would have on the quarterbacks and receivers. And I think the real issue is what it's done to offensive linemen, that so many of these guys are playing in systems that just don't, they don't closely enough relate to the NFL. And you're trying to project, all right, this guy's, this guy's not taking NFL pass sets. Like, what are we going to need to do to this guy once he gets to the NFL? And the time needed to do any of that doesn't exist anymore. So there needs to be something that bridges that gap again. And I I think your idea is a good one, which is like pooling these, pooling the resources of practice squads and have some kind of like real live reps or or learning experience because that that does ignore or get away from the biggest problem of those spring leagues, which is what you're saying, that there's just, you end up in a 12-month season for these guys, which is not sustainable. All right, a quick break to tell you about the best place to play fantasy football this summer, Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season, messing around with the team, roster management, all that kind of stuff that lasts about two weeks for me until I forget about it all and my team stinks. 
Underdog gives you the best score each week of the season, and the highest scores at the end of the year will win. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June. So you're already ahead of the game. There's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with the code PFF, and draft your best ball mania team today. Awesome deal for PFF listeners. But the NFL has to admit that they have an offensive line problem if they yes. want this to change, right? And I don't think they're willing to really admit that. It, and it's not, you know, the top teams don't have an issue, but obviously there's developmental issues, I think, on teams that just, that, you know, that, that just aren't as good. And I don't think they view that as like a big issue that needs to be fixed. Yeah, that's um, the thing. So they need to not just acknowledge that it's a problem, but acknowledge yeah. that it's a problem that requires money being spent on it. And yes. that's the big thing for the NFL. And they're not going to, they're just not going to, agree that that's an issue that needs to be spent you know, right. money needs to be spent on no i think you're right sadly like it, it for for those of us just watching the game it's something that needs to happen but for anybody controlling the purse strings as long as they don't see the bottom line being affected by it I don't, they're not going to care so yes <laughs> unfortunately it's something that's going to stay broken <laughs> until uh until i guess until the college game and the nfl game move close enough back together again we we are seeing the college game i think move back to preparing linemen a little bit better we had that stretch kind of from like 2011 to about like 2018 where all the linemen you got out of college were 305 pounds all ran the spread offense in college and you watched them play and there was almost nothing they did in college that translated to the nfl like you know yeah. greg robinson's a good example of this like he would have been one of the best dominant offensive linemen in college football like he was really really good in college football but you watch his film at auburn and nothing he did at auburn mimicked anything he would do in the NFL. It's why I'm kind of down on air raid guys for the most part. Like yeah. in college, you look at them, you're like, well, yeah, okay, sure, but you're not going to face a three-man rush on 50% of your snaps in college. I mean, excuse me, in the NFL. Like, are you doing anything on film that I can see that translates to the NFL? Because I think early on, especially if you drafted high in the draft, you're expected to play right away. And if you haven't, if you don't have any of that base of a drive block, of a 45 degree set of a play action set. Like you come in the NFL, in my opinion, at a disadvantage and the NFL, there's no, there's no waiting time. Like if you're a first round pick, second round yeah. pick and you play right away and you're not good in two or three years, you're out of there. Like you're gone, you're moving on. And so I think it's really hard sometimes for the college kids to make that transition. However, we are, again, we're seeing teams, even though they're spread out now, right. You know, but they're under center, they're taking their time. They're getting three-point stances. Like we're seeing, I think a return to players being more ready coming out of colleges. Offenses have gone from spreading things out to kind of bringing things a little bit more compact. I think the NFL is probably learning or has learned in that time as well, like how to manage the the, the learning process, right? How to manage the practice. The fact that you scaled all that back, they kind of at the exact time that the college game was going all the spread stuff and that there was becoming a bigger and bigger gap between college players and the NFL players, the NFL and the CBA was scaling back the amount of time the coaches had to work with them, right? So it was almost doubling the problem right away that you, the NFL was going to pick these guys, all right, we're going to have to work on projection more and more because they're not doing NFL things, but we've always right. done that, so that's not a problem. Only now you have half the time to work with them, and you can't, you know, you can't accelerate and get them up to speed the same way you used to. Yeah, I, I still do do think that there is a, is a part of the NFL for offensive linemen that still overdraft guys based on physical traits. I just think it's still a mistake. Definitely. Like it's we do this every year. We, we fall in love with a couple guys that just physically, man, they, they just have, but I'm like, where's it on film? Like you're, you're, you're asking, you're drafting in the first round and you're saying, like basically ignoring everything you saw in film to draft them to play right away. And then you really don't get to get your hands, hands on them until, until May they're there for three or four weeks and then you go away and then you come back for training camp. And now you're in pads, what 12 times in training camp. Like, yeah. like you just, you don't have this time to get guys ready. And yet NFL teams still draft players who are so raw. It does, like Tyler Smith, man, it, it makes no sense to me to draft a player like that in the first round and be like, hey, buddy, go play left guard for us. Like, what? okay, I mean, he will be a body at left guard, but like how 
quickly can he be ready to play football? They're, they want to be a playoff team this year. How quickly can he be ready to play football when you watch his film in Tulsa and there's, there's no technique there. It's all raw. It's all just athleticism. It's all just strength. That He needs time to figure that out in the NFL, but you're going to play him right away. That's a problem for me. Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there is a certain type of man who goes that extra mile, the little bit more. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big, hairless, winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right, Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best and biggest ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader in below-the-waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF. Manscaped's brand new Platinum 4.0 package is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PFF. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life and get yourself a Platinum package for your Platinum package. Yeah, it, I mean, it's because of the it's because of the potential payoff, though, right? Like, if they it's because of what like Jordan Mailata was able to do, right? You take a guy that's just wasn't that, Jordan Mailata like a seventh round? Yeah, pick yeah, yeah. Like, but, but that's like, what I'm like, saying. That's like, the thing. if you draft him in the third round, I feel differently. Right, you got him in the first round. No, I know, but like you spend that capital on him because of what a guy like Mailata became, right? Which is you take this guy who's just a freak right just huge can move like a cat for that size like just you know the planet theory right the bill parcells thing. Yeah. there's only so many humans walking the, the planet earth that can do what he can do and if you get one of them like my story is insane that dude has never played the game until 2018 and then yeah. you pick him up like randomly just decides yeah. all right i'm going to switch from rugby to the nfl i'm going to go into this interna- international players pathway thing and he gets drafted out of that. Like, hadn't played, and they, the Eagles spent a seventh-round pick on him. And then within, what, two, three years, he's, he's one of the highest-paid tackles in the NFL. He's a Pro Bowl player. Like, that's why you roll the dice on these guys that, all right, it's raw. You know, it's not, it's not pretty right now. Yeah. But, dude, look at those tools. If we get him coached up, this guy is an all-pro, and that's worth, you know, the, the $100 million contract. Right, but but again, it's it's where you get drafted, right? Seventh round pick, you do that. A first round pick, you really don't. And I think too often in the NFL, we look at outliers as the reasons why someone else will succeed, right? Like I like yeah, it happens all with quarterback. Well, Josh Allen was the you know he he succeeded when he wasn't supposed to, right? So therefore, X other quarterback will do it as well. I don't know. Josh Allen's the outlier. Like he's not the guy. And so Jordan Mylon is like the outlier, like guy who's never played football before. Seventh round pick goes to the Eagles. They have a great offensive line coach, good offensive line room. He's got a bunch of veterans to learn from. There's no guaranteeing the next guy will do that because Jordan did it. Um, and again, a seventh round pick is much different than spending a first round pick on a player hoping he turns into Jordan. No, I, I agree. I think there's definitely the NFL does that a lot. There's probably like a psychological, you know, name for this, like a fallacy of some kind, but like this idea of chasing unicorns that you know, oh, this guy's different. This guy's the exception. We just need, he's another one, right? This guy, anytime you fall in love with a prospect and there's like a couple of things, a couple of boxes they're not ticking, there's guys in that room that are trying to tell you why that doesn't matter, right? Why this guy is different to the rule. And I think there's, a, the NFL seems to default to that position more than you go the other way, which is to let, let's assume that the rules of physics in the game still apply to this guy. And, you know, if he ends up, proving an exception that's fine but we take that risk in the third fourth fifth round not in the first round and assume that he's an absolute freak of nature yeah and i mean the nfl will always do that because every coach and every general manager thinks they're the one who can you know be be the savior right be the guy that that changes and and becomes the guy that coaches this guy it's why first round draft picks continue to just play even though they're not any good. Right. They're just like, oh, well, first of all, they have the talent. I, I'm the coach that can do it. I can do it, everyone. And it typically doesn't work out. But, you know, it's just the way the NFL is. To, so I'm going to make a uh, I'm gonna make a rugby comp for you here, which is part of Ooh, my shtick. Okay, on yeah, I'm, I'm you know, me, big rugby fan. I'll oh, get of course. It. Yeah, yeah. So you get these guys that come along in rugby every now and again that are, you know, front row forward. So they're big. They're like offensive linemen. 
yeah. and the big area where they have to like learn is the scrum, which is this like weird, archaic, like witchcraft. This is like offensive line, right? Again, where only you guys really understand what's happening down there in the trenches. Only front row forwards understand the kind of ridiculousness that is happening in the scrum. And so you can have these guys that come along and they're like 18, 19, whatever. You know that they're going to be superstars. They're incredibly good. But you also know that there's like a year they need to go through where they face guys in the scrum who are like 10-year veterans and know all the tricks of the trade. And they have to basically get their ass kicked by every one of those guys to learn what it is they're doing. And it's only by like learning those tricks through like a year of, of getting beat that those guys can get better and become the players they're going to be. So there's always this kind of question of, well, if you have a guy and you know he's that good, like throw him in there at 18 and let him spend 18 to 19 getting his ass kicked. And then from 19 onwards, you have like a superstar. Is there, you, also does, have, you also have like those, like you have a league where they can do that in, right? Like no, no, yeah, yeah. The top rugby league. Well, yeah, but my point being like that guy is going to be bad for a year somewhere in the process and in the scrum. You just need to decide essentially yeah. when it's going to happen. Does, is that true? Does that work in the NFL? Like, is there an on-the-job part of learning that you essentially need to be playing, you know, against real players? You need to be going up against guys in real live reps in a game, and there's no way of replicating, like, that learning process. It's only by getting your ass kicked by Nick Bosa, you know, and understanding how Nick Bosa is beating you that you can hope to get better than Nick Bosa and block him the next time. Hundred percent. The reps are important. This is why a bunch of the old guys say, like, "Hey, man, like those preseason games that are being taken away don't help offensive line development." And and of course you need reps. Like you have to learn. And and this is why, like, you don't, you can't give up on someone after a year. I mean, right? Like it takes time with that position. But again, there's so much pressure now to play these young guys and have them play well because there's no. If you're a coach, you get what three years, maybe two yeah and like if you don't get those guys if you don't draft a guy and get him ready to play you get fired like there's just pressure now to, to have these guys play so quickly and be good so fast otherwise you lose your job so you know when it used to be a first round draft pick, you might not even start the first year you you might work yourself in at some point you know and then you you know year two you get better and year three you're ready to go now if you're a first round draft pick, you don't play right away what's wrong with this kid why can't you play right away right like he's a bust and then it takes some time typically to get that guy playing up to speed. And by year two and year three, you hope they're ready to go. But there's just so much pressure now to win now that this idea of developmental part of the game, it's hard to grasp for some of these, you know, for, for like a lot of the coaches because they have to like get these guys ready so quickly. It also makes it like almost impossible for guys that aren't high draft picks to play, right? Because, I mean, they, those guys may be capable of doing it, but they're going to take the same developmental time as anybody else. And if you have like a you know, just a fourth round pick ends up starting for you and getting his ass kicked for the first year. Like that dude's not playing, you know, he's just, all right, he's not good enough. Bye next guy. And we're yeah. on to the next one. Even if he just needed that year of development, maybe year two, he would actually become a good starter for you. I'm curious about the numbers, um, you know, about kind of that as we've gotten to a new CBA with less time in practice, like, are we seeing less, you know, seventh round, sixth, seventh round undrafted phrases yeah. play, than previously. I, I'm sure there's not enough data quite, you know, for that yet, but I was a seventh round draft pick, right? I got an entire year of being a practice squad, of, of being in pads, of working. And then I got, you know, again, a long off season. And by year two, I was ready to go. I mean, now, I don't know, man. I don't know if I, I just they wouldn't have those reps. I wouldn't be able to to learn the, the craft quite the same way. So I'm curious, again, it's probably too early to have any data on it, but I do wonder if that does hurt um, you know, lower drafted players that just don't have the opportunity to get the reps to get ready to play. I, I think it has to. You're right. I, I don't know if anybody's looked into it yet, but I, it feels like it's going to, it's just making life harder and harder for those guys to get the kind of opportunity that they might need to succeed, which is why, like, I keep coming back to him, but it makes that Jordan Mylata story even more insane oh, because yeah. he didn't just, like, make it, but he had to, like, they drafted Andre Dillard to be their left tackle. Like, he had to win that job from a former first-round pick having just picked up the game out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, he's, it's incredible what he's done. I mean, again, Stoutland and the, and the staff there deserves a lot of credit for getting him ready. I mean, again, it's the ability for a coach to um, – you know, find ways to improve players without the amount of time they used to have is I, I have the utmost respect for coaches. They're able to get that done. Um, and it, it's impressive, man. Like he's done a great job. And again, it, it's been 
probably a benefit to learn from Jason Peters, right? To learn from Lane Johnson, to learn from some of the older players that are in that room. But again, it comes down to coaching and and willpower, right? It just, again, it's, it's finding ways for it to get done without kind of pigeonholing him into certain techniques, right? Like, again, he's not doing what Lane Johnson does. That's not his game. And, and, and I like that the coach kind of allows him to do what he has to do to get it done, which again is not everyone plays the same way. It's okay to be that way. Do you think the team should like expand their kind of scouting presence in places like, you know, Samoa and, you know, the Pacific islands and all that? Cause guys like that, I mean, it's, it's that planet theory again, right? People, Polynesians are built different, right? Particularly for the offensive yeah. line. And okay, it's it's not quite the same as the NBA where like, you know, everybody you're scouting essentially is playing basketball. You would have to be scouting people that are playing rugby or playing a different sport, but they're they're like Jordan Mylata, right? They're they're freaks of nature. They can do things that the rest of us can't. Yeah. And we've proven that there is a way that those guys can be taught to to play offensive line in the NFL within a few years and okay most of them won't there that's the exception we're talking about but again like it feels like that's an untapped area where the NFL should be more heavily researching than they currently are I think it's actually happening a lot more on the, on the college level I, I read an article earlier this week Bruce Feldman wrote it for the athletic um, about a uh, former defensive lineman who's an international football scout he's helped 100 players from overseas get D1 offers um, and there's a kid right now that the article was about from Senegal who's 6'5", 300 pounds, plays rugby and basketball. And I think so. I think they're doing this from the, at the college level now. Like, they're trying to find these players because there's you know, obviously a rush to, you know, for kind of this recruiting, um, you know, change in recruiting in college football. I think it's happening now at the NFL, excuse me, the college level where the NFL probably doesn't even need to look. Like, college are going all over trying to find right. these players. And you're going to get more stories like this of just finding guys that move that are special movers and you bring them into college and that's where you can develop them, right? You put them red shirt them for a year. Um, there's different kind of rules for how red shirts can practice and you can put scrimmages on you. There's ways to get those guys better. And you also have, I mean, you got like three years to get them ready to play by year four, essentially, right? right? Like you don't need to rush them in there. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this from the college level more than the NFL level. Special movers is a great way of putting it. And by the way, just by saying that a guy plays rugby and basketball, he almost immediately ticks that box. Like if you're playing those two sports, given the skill sets required for each, you move in a special way. You're not a normal human being right out of the gate. So yeah, I think that's a good call. Um, So I started watching a bunch of Trent Williams tape the last couple of days for something else. Special mover. Yes. (laughs) Not just special mover, but so Trent Williams last season basically broke PFF's grading scale. Like he, it's the highest grade we've ever given an offensive lineman um, over a single season. What did he end up with? Uh, the final the final tally 97.8 right now the the way this scale works it's not it's not like a linear thing right so the high the closer you get to 100 the bigger the gap is between you know 98 and 99 and it gets harder to get higher the higher up the scale you get so for him to be 97.8 the next highest guy was Tyron Smith at 91.4, Mylata 87, 86, 86, blah, blah, blah. So for him to be 90, essentially a 98, is it's just stupid. It's not like it's absolutely absurd. It's by far the best grade we've ever given in a single season. And you turn on his tape, and in particular in the run game, like it's just a snuff film. Like he's just destroying dudes. I, are we, A, what the hell happened to him? I mean, he's been amazing anyway, but like, this was some sort of freakish lightning in a bottle season for the ages. And, and B, like, are we ever going to see this kind of season again? Well, I think that he kind of got paired in a really good offensive system, right? Where, yeah. like, you're, you know, the way that Shanahan sets up his run game is better than any other coach, in my opinion. They're just like, he gets Lyman in good positions to succeed. And the leverage is really, he makes sure that with the motions and shifts, your leverage is really good. That's why, like, Trent can have those like full head-on, full-speed collisions with linebackers yeah. because they don't see him because the leverage is set up really well by what the scheme is, and so I just think it's a it's a marriage of scheme and talent, and that's you get the excellent ability to to run block. And you know, Trent Williams is really interesting because I've looked at this kind of like this generation, like who's going to be the Hall of Famers, right? And Trent Williams only made two. I think I'm looking right now two All Pro teams in his career. Yeah, you know, in 11 years, like I thought it would have been more. To your point, like I just thought it would have been more, and it hasn't been. I think it should have been, play, to be fair. But if he plays at this level for so many years, 
Um, I think we'll consider him a, in that category fairly soon. So, um, again, I think it's a, a marriage of his skill set, his movement ability, his finish ability, his, his explosiveness, and the offense he plays in. If he played in a, you know, a more kind of double team, vertical offense, like the Ravens offense, which is kind of the extreme angle, he's probably not as good, right? But this yeah. zone offense, one-on-one blocks, backside cutoffs, running at linebackers, getting in space on screens, all those things, I think, just fit his skill set. And Shannon does a great job with that. He's led the league in overall PFF grade for an offensive tackle, I think, four times now in his career, including yeah. the last two seasons, like back-to-back. Um, so I think he probably should be more than a two-time All-Pro. But you're right. Like, he doesn't he doesn't get talked about in that way that, like, you know, Joe Thomas did or, like, these guys that were kind of cast iron Hall of Famers from very early on, and they, they just kind of kept on going. Um and probably should at this point. The the play you were talking about where he gets, you know, those clean run on linebackers, I don't think it was this year. I think it was the year before. The year before, yeah. Against Arizona, where I've never felt more sorry for a player in my <laughs> life than I did for Jordan Hicks, right? Where he's going up against, you know, Kyle Shanahan, 49ers offense. So already there's motion, there's window dressing. You've got to, like, you know, read four different things to figure out where the hell the play is going. And then the second, literally the split second, he understands where the ball is, right? It's like fake jet motion one way, like, you know, read option. And then, okay, there, there's the ball. Like, as soon as he identifies it, Trent Williams is there running yeah. full speed, you know, from with like a 10-yard head start and just annihilates him, just deletes him from the play. And then there's, and then there's the... Um... You know, when they put him in motion last year in the playoff game. Yeah, it was just, it was just it was, unfair. Oh, it was, it was so much fun, uh, you know, Shanahan doing that. So I think it's just a really good fit with scheme and personnel and, and the ability for Williams to move in space. It's a, it's a really good marriage there in that offense. What I noticed him doing more than I've seen any offensive lineman do is he's so good and so um, he does this so much to, like, swipe a guy's hands down and just, like, just let them fall on the floor. You know what I mean? Like, unbalance yeah. the defender by removing the dude's arms and just watch him face plant and then just, you know, either sit on top of him or move on to the next guy. Like, I've never seen an offensive lineman do that so regularly and so successful yeah. as Trent Williams does. It's just using kind of their their momentum against him. And again, yeah. I mean, that's one thing that he couldn't do that a lot of us probably can't get away with, right? Like, he's so quick and his timing with his hands are so good, he's able to make the head. Like, if, if we if I do that, I miss. Right. Like, that's it. I'm falling on my butt. Like, I'm getting run over, right? So, like, I think that, you know, it works really well for him, and he's honed in on something that, that works for him. It's impressive to watch him be able to do that. I wish I was able to, to play that quickly and be able to get guys' hands off of me like that, but I wasn't. But it's fun to watch him do it. He's also just got that. Like, he's got the combination, right? He, he, he's got everything. He's got the speed, the quickness, and just freakish strength. Like, there yes. are plays where he gets a guy and he's head up and just, just, just moves him, right? Just immediately grabs him, wrenches him a yard inside. It's like, all right, that's the block done. Like, there was a play, you know, outside zone against Dallas. Randy Gregory is, is trying to set an edge. And Trent Williams makes up a shade on him with, you know, the first couple of steps. So immediately you're talking whatever Trent Williams is, 330 pounds against Randy Gregory's 245 maybe, right? So you're like almost 90-pound disadvantage and you make up the, the yard for speed. And then as soon as he's head up, he just like grabs Randy Gregory, throws yeah. him inside and plants yeah. him on the floor. And it's like, okay, you got 100, you know, you got 90 pounds on that guy. But that is a large man that you are treating like a rag doll. It's so interesting, the discourse and talk about when it comes to like pancakes and throwing guys around where there's this idea that like, because someone weighs less than you, you should be able to do that. And it's right. like, well, if that was the case, then why does it happen more often? Yeah. Like you can say, oh, he weighs more, you know, 100 pounds more than them. Well, then it should happen more often. It's hard to move another human. I mean who's trying not to be moved and throw him to the ground. Yes. Like, dude, like a 90 pound advantage is great, but a 245, 250 pound man is a strong individual and does not yes. get thrown around without some serious strength being applied to him. Like exactly. Yes. And, and particularly, you know, I mean, we joke about it all the time, right? Like Steve, Steve weighs like a hundred pounds more than I do ish. Right. And so he has to, that gives him a certain inbuilt strength that I just can't even 
fathom, right? Like we've been to the gym every you know together at times, and there's stuff that he can do without like he doesn't work out for like six months and goes and like you know single single dumbbell yeah. rows and can just do like ninety pounds without thinking about it because the dude's two seventy five, right? He's just he just has an extra like inbuilt layer of strength that. I don't have carrying around 100 less pounds. So the size thing matters, but like a 250-pound dude is huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yes. Yes. You're exactly right. It, it does matter. Um, you know, just kind of size is why player, other players are better than other ones just because their build is different. I, there's, a, there's a part of uh, just genetics that plays an important role here. One thing I did want to ask you is, so, you know, anytime offensive line plays get talked about or you do a video or you throw up some highlights or whatever, there's a guy in the comments, it's like, oh, it's holding. Every play's holding, right? Oh, and okay, that guy's objectively an asshole. Um, and there's a lot of sort of offense, like there's a lot of coverage play, right? That's, oh, well, that's pass interference or that's illegal contact or whatever. Like the playing almost every position there's like a pretty big percentage of what you're doing that's probably technically not, you know, legal, but it yeah. is. That's just how you play the game, right? And understanding where that line is is the important part. Is there a specific type of holding call, penalty, that drives you nuts as an offensive lineman? Because I have one, and I'm curious if you have the same. Um, I have two, but the, the first one is when the quarterback leaves the pocket. Yeah. And we're just blocking. It's like, we don't know the guy's left. Like, what are you supposed to do? Just stop blocking? Like... So you know, if, you, if, you, if you're the tackle and you're blocking someone, right, and the quarterback leaves the pocket and that guy tries to get away from you, I mean, you're still going to hold him. Like, he's getting trying to move. Like, you're allowed to have him inside it, you know? And then as soon as he kind of flails, they call holding. Yeah, yeah. The other one I can't stand, and they started emphasizing this, was the the back pad um, on, like, the outside zone play where you kind of pull you kind of, you pull the guy through and you hit him on the back. Right. Not holding. I, what, what part of that is holding? I, I, the pull through is not only really holding. You're using the momentum to pull them through, and you hit them on the back. So those are two to me that frustrate me the most uh, because I really feel like one's not even holding, and the other one, you're not. You're not really. You don't know where the quarterback is at. Like how, how is that holding? We were blocking someone. The quarterback escapes. We're still blocking that guy. The quarterback's moved. I get it, but like I just think that that one drives me crazy. So the one that I hate is the one that you get you're going to get no sympathy for because you're already losing the block, right? And nobody wants to give the guy credit for for losing a block. But if you have a guy and let's say your guard is trying to block Aaron Donald, right? And Aaron Donald bull rushes him and you get driven right back and you get essentially pancaked in reverse. But then Aaron Donald trips over your prone corpse on the ground, right? They they call holding on that. You didn't hold him. He fell over your dead body yeah. on the floor. Like he's already won. He's already getting pressure. Don't throw a flag and call it holding as well. I didn't hold him. I just got run the hell over. Uh, yeah. Well, there are times though. To be fair, that we do grab guys as we fall down. Yeah, so, like, that's true. I mean, I've I've fallen down. I've been run over before, and I just grab some pad, <laughs> like kind of just quickly, like right here, and you pull them down as quickly as possible because right. you don't want to get the, the quarterback hit. No, right? no, that's so, fair. Like that is and, holding, but and, like yeah, if the but guy I, just I, trips I, over your body as he's trying oh, to run yeah. over well, you, yeah, that's because they're not looking. I feel like I feel like just officiating in general. It's not really a comment about holding. Like I think officials look for too many penalties. Like just call what's there. I understand there's a point of emphasis each year, but like if you see a holding, call it. Like don't call it because the numbers for the first three weeks have been too low and right. you need to call more holdings to get back to average. Like if you see a holding, call it. If you don't see a holding, don't call it. Like it's very simple. Like that that to me feels like an easy thing, but yet it feels like that's not actually the way it's applied. I think it's because so the NFL is so obsessed with like um making every rule black and white. But like what we talked about at the start of this, by definition, holding and illegal contact and pass interference are not black and white because playing the game, like if you really wanted to call holding, you could call it in every single play. If you really wanted to call pass interference, you could find it in pretty much every play. Illegal contact, same thing. So immediately you're already like saying, well, this is definitely a gray area, but we're going to write the rule in such a way that it isn't. So you cause this like problem where, well, now you're just now you're just at the behest of like when the guy decides to call it when he doesn't like it's, you know, you either need to say well, it's either it's got to be an egregious play, which frankly, I would be for or you're just relying on these guys making it up as they go. Yeah, um, um, it's just I get it. This point emphasis. I just think to your point, like just call if it's there. 
So the last thing I want to ask you is um, if you were building an offensive line from scratch, right, how would you go about it? Where would you put your resources? How much would you invest in it? Would you invest in, you know, specific positions more than others? The the thing we've sort of said for a while at PFF is you just want to get an average offensive line, right, By, um, by which I mean have no weak link. So it doesn't matter really how good the five guys are as long as none of them are a problem. And if none of them are a problem, you've got a pretty good offensive line. You probably haven't spent too much money on it. And you have a platform that's more than good enough for a quarterback or your receivers, your pass game, your run game to succeed. That would be our strategy. What would yours be? Yeah, I, I think I used to kind of be of the opinion, like, you know, you need a great left tackle. But, like, I think it's fairly clear you just need to have five good players. Like, like, yeah, you, great left tackle is fantastic. And every team that wins has one. Like, it's not like a surprise. But to your point about weak link, like, if you have two guys that are weak links, you're kind of screwed. Right. Because you have one guy, you can scheme it up, and you're fine. But two, now it becomes more difficult. So to me, I mean, if we're, if we're valuing positions, it's, you know, it's the tackles and the centers probably, right? The centers, but especially in your offense, if your center is in charge of doing a lot of things for your offense, that guy needs to be good. Um and it's the, the important going back to what we've talked about this whole theme about fit, like making sure that, that you there's not one size fits all for everything. Like if you have a shorter quarterback, you need to have big old guards in the middle, right? You need to have big guards that keep the pocket very firm so your quarterback can see, right? Like Drew Brees for so many years, giant guards keep the pocket in front of him and be able to see. So like I could say, yeah, you want to have five, but you need to have five guys that fit what you want to do. If you're an outside zone team, you get five offensive linemen that know how to run outside zone. If you're, again, if you're a power team, the Ravens, right, you need to get five offensive linemen that know how to double team and move guys vertically off the ball. And so I think it, it, it there's no correct answer because you need to get guys that fit what you do. And so I, I'm with you, though. You need kind of five average guys rather than having, like, a good left tackle, a good right guard, and a shitty center. Like right. You're right about that. But again, it's more about, to me, do these guys fit what we want to do, or do they? are they just kind of like good but don't really – they're not good at specific things that we ask them to do. So that, to me, is, is the most important part. Do they fit what we want to do? Would you still target that, like, superstar left tackle and try and, you know, get the guy that locks down the most important position on the line we don't have to think about that? Or would you just, I, like – I mean, it's hard to – to ignore that basically every offensive line that's good in the NFL has a good left tackle. Like it's hard, right? I mean, look, which, which good offensive line in the league doesn't have a good left tackle. Right. I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. I mean, no one, I, I, I like that. You have to, that's sort of a, a staple. Um, but what, what that does, I think is having at least a left or right tackle. One of those guys being really good is it allows you to help the other side. Right. So you say, if you are the Niners or something, like Trent Williams, right? Like Trent Williams, you never get help. We're never worrying about you. We're helping the right tackle instead. And that's where the important part comes in, I think. So if your right tackle's elite, you can help your left tackle. But most offensive lines in the NFL have those elite tackles because you have to have them in the NFL now. Um, so, yeah, you can't have a bum and left tackle. But if you do, I think your right tackle needs to be a stud as well, and you can make it work. So you mentioned that, you know, the most important spots were like the tackles and then the center next because of all the stuff that guy does for the line, blocking calls, all that kind of thing. Why do you think that centers are the one position where teams are just refuse teams just refuse to draft those guys high, right? Like Nick Mangold was like dude with the best offensive line prospect ever, and the dude went like 20, 21, something like that. Yeah. Like no matter so Quentin Nelson comes along, right? And the, the funny thing about Quentin Nelson is that like, he was the guy that unified everybody, right? The nerds, the yeah. O-line guys, like whoever, wherever you were on the spectrum of like how you consume the game, you loved Quentin Nelson as a prospect, yes. right? So he changed the rules of like when you draft a guard. So, well, he's so good. You can take him in the top 10. doesn't matter. Like he'll make it worth it. And he was, he has, he's been more than worth it for that position. It doesn't seem to apply to centers. Like no matter how good the center is, we're not taking him in the top 10. We're probably not taking him in the top 20. Like, he's going to have to go 20 to 25, and then we'll just consider it like, you know, a bargain that we got a Hall of Famer with a <laughs> mid-20s draft pick. Good question. Um, I I think just because, um, you know, they're just ha- – like, you can get a Creed Humphreys in the second round. Like, there's no, there's no need to get him in the first round because no one else is doing it as – like, if everyone decided this year 
to start drafting centers in the first round, then they'll go in the first round. But you can get them now in the second round, the third round, where I don't think that teams feel the need, just like linebacker, you know, off the ball linebackers, right? Um, you you don't really need to draft them high in the first round because they're just not going high in the first round. Right. But I, it doesn't feel like that. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't feel like that's why teams are doing it though. Like it, it's not, it's not like running backs well, where yeah, they're sort of like, Oh, sure, we can get a running back later on. You're right about that because they don't value that position. So I guess the question is why do they not? And my, again, I go back to like, you don't need to draft them in the first round because no one else ever does that. I, I right. And, and, and I mean, it just, they're hard to evaluate, um, you know, I think mean, coming out of college, it just, it's hard. That position's difficult to evaluate. Sure. Um, where, where were but, you on, uh, on Tyler Linderbaum? Um, I think he's really good. Just the question is size, right? I right. mean, he's more like a Jason Kelsey than he is like a big old, you know, Ryan Jensen, right? Like, um, and so again, uh, he went to the Ravens, right? So, yeah. um, you know, that's an interesting fit. Cause I don't know it if is. it fits what they want to do on offense. I'm kind of curious about that, but he, he can, he can run block, man, but you know, I think it's just his, the question is, you know, obviously size with him. Are we reaching the point where that's like, it's just a smaller problem than it once was like so, the size? way. Yeah. Particularly for centers, not necessarily for like every position, but like the way the league has gone, you know, essentially the, almost the eradication of like an old school three, four, two gapping system. Like nobody's playing with Ted Washington these days, you know? So a center doesn't need to be able to block a 350 pound nose tackle who two gaps yeah. the whole time. No, that that's, that's certainly fair because I think that that's where we, I think you're right. That's kind of where we at, uh, where we're at, um, where, um, you know, you don't really need, you know, the big guys, but again, I go back to like fit, right? Like, is he fitting, what they want to do on offense, yeah. uh, we'll find out. But he can play. He's a football player. I, I thought he was a first-round pick to me. I had first-round grade. Yeah, because he, he – I mean, he was a guy who crushed the PFF grading system. And, like, early in the process, it was like he might be the center version of Quentin Nelson, right, where he's such a good prospect that we, like, throw out the rules and he gets taken, you know, in the top ten somewhere. And then you know, it's like, ah, he's a little bit – undersized his arms are short like it just it was just enough you know to like enough boxes that weren't ticked where you could yeah. it was harder to make that case but in terms of like how that dude played in college like he he's as good as we've seen since we've been great in college which goes back to like 2014 now he's good man like and again like i think he'll be fine in the nfl but fit to me is is the one thing i'm just you know we'll find out if 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 the fit is right. That, I mean, that I'm kind of most excited about that because, I mean, A, Baltimore does this pretty well. You know, they generally know what they're doing. Um, but you're right. That is, that's a weird fit and not one that you would have, like, predicted coming before the Correct. draft. The fact that they've gone out of their way to make that pick sort of makes me excited about, like, what he's going to do at this level. Because if Baltimore, Agreed. of all teams, thinks that he's fine for their system, you know, that runs a ton of gap stuff that doesn't, you know, yeah. have him on the move running outside zone the whole time, that I think should be massively like encouraging for what we should expect from him. Agreed. Agreed. Cause if, they, if they've been drafted well, they know what they need. And if they drafted him, then you must feel like they know what they need and he's the guy that fits. Right. Um, all right, Jeff, this has been awesome. Tell the people where they can find you. Yeah. At Jeff Schwartz on Twitter. Um, and then my podcast, Jeff Schwartz is smarter than you. Um, talk sadly about uh, my, my beloved Pac-12 conference kind of, Going up in smoke, but it is what it is. We'll be fine. But uh, a lot of a lot of college football talk recently. How do you how how do you think that whole realignment mess is gonna is gonna shake out? Are the Pac-12 oh, gonna still exist? It'll, I, mean, um, I mean, in the, I don't know, ten years, we'll probably have two super conferences. It just kind of slowly happen over time. Um, the frustrating part is that it just seems to be only about the TV market you're in, not really whether you're good or not, which I right. think is, is Oregon fans kind of frustrating for, for us. Um, well, it leaves you know, guys kind of stuck on an island, right? Like you're... And yeah, we're, we're kind of stuck. And, you know, I, I see things, you know, that, well, the LA TV market has so many TVs. Well, but how many are watching UCLA versus how many are watching Oregon play? Like Oregon gets better ratings than, than UCLA. USC was been down. I think USC will get better ratings moving forward. But just a matter of how many households you know that, that you have you know available to uh to have tvs so uh, it is what it is I, oregon will be fine i'm not oregon's on track to get a 
five-star quarterback tomorrow. I'm, I'm not really worried about it, but it's it's a bummer. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm all for the idea of two super conferences as long as they're still called the Big Ten and the Big Twelve with like 82 teams in each. <laughs> um, yeah, it just it, it's going there at some point. It's just a bummer that I don't think I don't think a lot of us thought it would fracture kind of like the way it is. But right. It, it's the sport now. It's driven by uh, you know money mostly, which money, is always kind yeah. of big, but now it's kind of just out in the open. Cool. All right, Jeff. Thanks so much for doing this. Have yep. fun in uh, have fun in Texas. Thank you. Take um, care. Thanks for having me. Take it easy. Bye.